Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. God, more and more may we come to know you, not as the one who asks for sacrifice, but as the one who provides. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. During the season of Lent this year, we are taking some time to build some new approaches to the Bible. The Bible. (laughs) This library of ancient documents written over centuries by many authors can be so perplexing. I mean, you read on one page these beautiful words of a psalm or the merciful words of Jesus, and then you turn the page and find something that seems so violent or backward. How can we hold this text as our sacred story when there's so much in these pages that is clearly not good? In this series, we are aiming to hold the Bible as a library with a trajectory. As humanity grows and its apprehension of God becomes richer, we see a record of movement forward. We'll explore how passages that seem violent to us today represented a move forward in the author's time and culture, and how these stories can inspire us to look for where the divine is beckoning us forward today. I want to start today by considering an ancient story whose impact on my own life has been deeply personal. By the time I reached junior high, I had already pieced together that my life wasn't turning out like the other little boys. I don't remember exactly when I put a word on what I was experiencing, but I knew pretty early that when pastors at church or people on the news talked about homosexuality, they were talking about people like me. Now, I know that LGBTQ people here at Pearl Church have had a really wide variety of experiences with faith and sexuality. Uh, But for me, the interesting thing was that as a child, as a teenager, even well into my mid-20s, I never even wondered if my sexuality could be a good thing. I just knew that I was going to have to sacrifice my sexuality in order to follow God. I had learned that if there was one thing you could count on, it was this. God was going to ask you to sacrifice things that you wanted to show that you loved God most. And oh, I wanted, I wanted to show that I loved God most. When I was a teenager, I read and I resonated with Dietrich Bonhoeffer talking about cheap grace and the cost of discipleship. And I knew the cost. And I was ready to pay it. This, I thought, was my cost to bear, my cross to bear. It took a long time for me to unravel all of this. I know for lots of us here, it's taken a long time to unravel these things. We're still unraveling. And while for me the cost was sexuality, I think many of us who grew up in the Christian world shared a similar kind of belief. Maybe for you, the cost of discipleship was that you had to be morally perfect and not make any mistakes. 
Or maybe you were haunted by the idea that if you were really holy, you would give up everything and go be a missionary somewhere. Or maybe you feared that if you want anything too much, God would take it from you for your own good to keep that thing from being an idol. Whatever the category is for you, I'm sure quite a few of us could tell stories of a time in our Christian past when we believed that something that we longed for deeply and even needed had to be sacrificed to show that we loved God more. And if your church world was like mine in my college years, the more it hurt, the more you proved your faithfulness to God. The question I didn't know how to ask until my late 20s was, is this is this really what God is like? Does God really need us to prove our love through suffering and sacrifice? I found that question hard to ask because if you read some portions of the Bible, the answer seems to be clearly, yes. Yes, this is what God is like. Uh, Genesis 22 was a major part of where I got this idea. So you have Abraham. Abraham has been called out by God to leave behind an empire and go into nomadic wandering. And Abraham is longing for a child, for an heir. God promises that there will be an heir, but it takes a very long time until at last beyond hope, Isaac is born. And this son, Isaac, is the hope for the future of Abraham's line and also for how Abraham will be a blessing to all the nations. But then, we're told... God tests Abraham. One day Abraham believes he hears God saying, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. I had a professor once who read the story and then said, If you hear these words, you might want to ask, Who's this speaking? That's funny, you can laugh. I want to read a portion of this story, and I'd like to invite you to pay attention to your emotional reactions. It might help free up some of these emotional reactions if you pretend for a moment this is not a story from the Bible. This is just some text you're hearing from who knows where. So, Abraham rose early in the morning and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So, what comes up for you in that text? As I read this text, I feel horror. Horror at a world where sacrificing your own child would seem like something that God might ask you. I feel the gut-wrenching sadness where I, when Isaac asks, Where is the lamb for the sacrifice, Father? But I also feel deep discomfort with the ending. Don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son. I mean, doesn't this clearly teach just the idea we've been talking about? If you want to prove how much you love God, sacrifice something dear to you. 
God is going to test you to see if you're willing to let go of what you want most. Okay, when we read violent texts like this, I think we often get forced into what feels like one of two options. One option is, well, this is God's word, this is how it is, which means that we either stuff down our horror or we walk away from the text altogether. We just forget it. Or the other option that we feel is, I don't like this, so I'm going to pretend it's not here. And we turn the page to the next text, right? But that feels really disintegrating, and you end up holding this book where you kind of have to like flip pages every now and again and skip parts, and you don't know what to do with the in-between that you don't read. What about a third option, though? Okay, this is an ancient text. So I can expect that there are going to be some things, some ideas about God that are reflections of an ancient culture, and they aren't good, and they aren't right, and they aren't true. But right alongside those ideas are these provocative, revolutionary ideas that can move things forward. They moved things forward then, and they can move things forward now. One thing we might want to do when we come across these kinds of violent texts is ask, why is this text here at all? And keep in mind, people had to tell these stories orally over and over for centuries before someone wrote them down, and writing them and copying and recopying was a time-consuming and difficult task. These stories were kept very intentionally because they did something. So what does this story do when it was told? Well, we might think about how ancient religion works. Okay, so you live in a world of uncertainty, depending on so many factors beyond your control. You need the crops to grow. You need the raiders to stay away. You need the floods to be enough water so that the nutrients come up on the soil, but not so much water that your entire family gets washed down the river. Right? You, all these things, you need the gods on your side. So humans think of currying favor with the gods by sacrifice. You know, give, give up a bit of something that you find precious to buy the favor of the gods. But how do you know when it's enough? How do you know when you've given enough? One way to try to cover your bases is to give more and to give more and more precious things until finally, what's more precious than a child? Now, that's a violent and horrifying logic, and we rightly condemn it. But if this was your world and you were desperate to survive, there's a kind of grim fatality here, right? You can see how humans might get there. So in Genesis 22, one way or another, Abraham comes to the belief that God wants him to sacrifice Isaac. And I think we should be very skeptical that God actually said this. Because the thing is, this wouldn't have been surprising to Abraham, it's horrible, but this is how the gods work, right? Until it isn't. See, the great turn of the story is that God says, stop, I don't need this from you. I don't want you to kill your child. This God is not like the gods. The God of Abraham doesn't want child sacrifice. And for the time, that's a pretty big leap forward. I mean, can you see how this story would have actually been hopeful and good in an ancient world, right? God might ask for sacrifices, but God is not going to ask for your child. And if you really believe that your child was on the table, that's a big relief. But is it enough? 
No, of course not. I mean, why not end the whole idea of sacrifices? Why keep the idea that God is really satisfied when you give up things? Well, it, it would take a few thousand more years for humanity to get to the place where they could start to entertain that idea. But we can say in its time, yes, this story was a movement forward. And no, the story doesn't go far enough. And yet, there's a kernel here. There's, there's this revolutionary little kernel here sitting and waiting to do its work. Remember earlier we said about how to kind of hold a text, this third way. This is an ancient text, so I can expect there's going to be some ideas about God that are reflections of an ancient culture that aren't good, right, or true. But right alongside those old ideas are these provocative, revolutionary ideas that moved things forward then, and they can move us forward now. Is the idea of paying God with sacrifice awful? Yeah, yeah, it is. But right here, alongside all the horror, there's this. Abraham looked and saw a ram caught in the thicket, and he went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The Lord will provide. You see, the turn in this story isn't just from child sacrifice to no child sacrifice. The revolutionary kernel here that's actually far too revolutionary for its time is this. God doesn't ask for sacrifices. God is the one who provides. This isn't a God who demands, but a God who gives. And no one had ever heard of a God like that. I mean, that's not how the gods work, right? I mean, the gods are indifferent to humans unless you placate them with grain and animal sacrifices, and they couldn't care less if a flood washes you and your family away. But not, not this god. This idea keeps simmering in the minds of the Hebrew people uh, in the background, right alongside their centuries-long sacrificial system. You keep getting these insights popping up in the Hebrew scriptures, kind of like out of nowhere. For example, Isaiah 64, 4. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. See, Most of the gods work for those who work for them, but this God works for those who just wait and trust. This God isn't served by humans, but works on behalf of them. Or or take Psalm 50. Psalm 50, God is talking to Israel, and, and God says, Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Call on me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. And this is really interesting, right in the middle of a culture where animal sacrifice is going on daily in the temple, God says, I don't need all of this. Actually, what I want, I want to help you and see you feel gratitude. That's what I want. I want you to flourish. See, this is the revolutionary kernel in the text all the way back in Genesis 22. This ancient violent story also holds the seed of an idea that's still revolutionary today. I mean, what if God isn't asking for anything from you? What if God is actually the one who delights to provide? What if God is actually deeply generous? 
As is often the case, Jesus picks up on this theme from the Hebrew Scripture and runs with it. And he pushes it as far as the first century Jews will allow him to go, and then a little bit further. For example, Jesus tells the story of a landowner who goes early in the morning to hire some laborers. Now, a little bit of background here. Uh, as is the case throughout history, when you have big landowners, the reason they are big landowners is because they pushed economically weaker people off of the land. Right? You had small farmers who got shoved off the land, so now you have a big landowner, and you have people who used to have subsistence farming, but they don't have that anymore. Now they're utterly reliant on day wages. They have to work to feed their families. It's desperate for them. So these day laborers are out in the marketplace waiting, and the, the landowner goes and hires some of them to work. And then a few hours later, he goes back and finds more, and he hires them, and then again and again hires more until it's one hour left in the workday, and he finds a few more in the marketplace and hires them. They go to the field. Okay, it's the end of the workday, and they queue up to get paid. And the landowner pays them last to arrive to the first. And he goes to the last to arrive, these people who have been there one hour, and he pays them a full day's wages. And the first people are like, wow, this guy pays a really great per hour rate. And they start doing the calculations about how much they're going to make. But the landowner goes down the line and pays everyone the equal amount, one day's wage. Now, if that was you, you probably would be a little frustrated, uh, maybe a little angry about this, right? I mean, that doesn't seem fair. I worked all day long, and did we get the same amount? That the landowner says, do you begrudge my generosity? See, Jesus is saying this is what God is like. God is dealing with us not on the basis of what we deserve, not on the basis of what we've earned, but what we need. I mean, think about it. These people who arrived at the end of the day, don't they have families to feed? Aren't they in a desperate situation? Is it just really, truly good for them to get an hour's amount of pay if it means their families starve? No, that's not justice. That's not good. I like to tell this story because it helps us to start to question some of the assumptions of our day. And it gets us at how this story from Genesis 22, this little kernel, is revolutionary now. See, we probably aren't going to think in terms of animal sacrifice, right? But we are capitalists, and we certainly think of God in terms of exchange. You work for God, God rewards you. What could be more natural? And that's hard for us to shake. But God loves to provide, not sacrifice, but gift. You see, embedded in a text as violent as Genesis 22 is an idea as revolutionary as can be, that if we continue to steep on, it will keep moving us forward now. God is not the one who demands, but the one who provides. What would it mean for us if we allowed that idea to stir our hearts and to sink down into our bones? I mean, for one, it might help us start to loosen our grip on our sacrifice stories. You know, that sense you have that any moment God is going to ask you to give up something to prove that you love God. The sense that we have that if it hurts, you're doing religion right. For me, the most productive first step toward reconciling my faith and my sexuality was when I realized that God was going to love and accept me exactly the same if I was wrong. God didn't need me to be right. I didn't have to pay God by being correct. 
Because God is one who provides, not one who demands. I had the safety to ask questions, the safety to take risks, the safety to embrace myself. I wonder what sacrifice stories might loosen in your heart and experience as you steep on this movement forward, that God relates to you not by demanding sacrifice, but by giving gift, that this is God, the one who provides. I also wonder what might shift in our communities and our culture if we steep on this story. I mean, our sense of God is so likely to be rooted by capitalism, that this idea of payment and sacrifice is so deep in us. We're deeply enamored with the idea that people get what they earn. People should get what they deserve. And we think that God is like us, giving reward and return for payment, payment of obedience or right belief or moral behavior. But if God is one who provides, if God is not demanding but giving, then, well, how might that change our imagination about those all around us? I mean, if God is generous, then can a culture that's based on getting what you deserve ever really get at God's justice? As we close today, I want to take note of what we just did, just what we did with this text, because I think this represents a really good movement forward for us in how we can hold the Bible. So, first, we read a text, and we noted some responses honestly, including our aversions, things we didn't like or find good about that text. We considered why would the story be kept, and what did it, how did it represent a movement forward in its day? We were honest about how that movement, while good in that day, isn't far enough now, and we pondered how there might be an invitation to move further, even further today. This is one way we can begin holding texts, being honest about what's violent, curious about movements forward, and seeking out these revolutionary kernels that can move everything forward today. If we do, I think we'll find ideas like, God is not demanding sacrifice, but delights in providing generously. Ideas that have the power to shake us out of our bad theology and into hope for the future. So, today... Let this idea settle into your heart. God is the one who provides. God doesn't need anything from you except the joy of seeing you flourish. May you be steeped in divine generosity. May you know that the heart of God is with you and for your flourishing. May you know in your bones that God doesn't need anything from you. And may you be animated by divine love into an image of that generosity in our world. Let's pray. God, may we more and more see you as one who does not demand sacrifice, but who always provides. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.